This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're finishing up with chapter 10. The United States was born out of a revolution against a monarchy, and we take great pride in our representative democracy, as we should. History tells us that government leaders with unlimited, absolute power are dangerous and cause great damage. That all changes when the monarch in question is sinless and divine, which is the case of Jesus Christ. Today, we'll learn more about the everlasting King, Jesus, the Savior and God, whose benevolent monarchy brings only good to the earth. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. If we're interested in becoming more like Christ, I can't think of a better way to look at the personality of the monarch and look at the Bible passages here before us that tell us about him. So here's a little bit about him according to chapter 10 of the Gospel of Matthew, verses 34 through 42. So follow along with me. He says this to the disciples, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law, her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Many things to talk about here, church. We're going to talk about Jesus' honesty, his demands, and his guarantees. Okay, We'll start with his honesty here. He is recruiting people to serve him. He doesn't want them to be uninformed about the realities of ministry. So he is honest with them. Why? Well, he's about to send them to proclaim the kingdom of heaven, the consequences of which brings conflict and hardship. Many of Matthew's original readers expected a political messiah to lead them in an uprising against Rome and establish peace by the sword. But he clarifies that that's not the case. The disciples, as well as Matthew's original Jewish audience, knew the messianic title Prince of Peace. Perhaps that's another reason. That's from Isaiah 9, verse 6. Perhaps that's another reason. They were thinking, well, he came here to crush Rome and establish the peace of God immediately. But Jesus clarifies that no, his first advent would actually produce antagonism before he would establish peace on earth. His focus in his first coming here was to promote peace between people and God, you see? But that's going to result in conflict, in familial bonds being broken, in persecution, antagonism. The image of a sword brings the picture of martyrdom, of hardship, of death. And he wants both that generation and modern disciples today to know that gospel proclamation, church, invites trouble. You will be hated when you commit to sharing Christ with other people. 
And the reason for that is very simple to understand, church. We don't preach a message that is very popular. We preach a message that confronts human pride. And for that, people will rise up against you and me. Now, the solution that many people have found is to water down the message of the gospel and dilute the glory of the simple gospel and turn that into a message that people want to hear. Now, that is not the solution. But look at verse 35. Jesus quotes Micah 7, verse 6. His listeners knew what he was talking about. He's referring back to the time of King Ahaz and the division that faithfulness to God brought. So there's nothing new. Jesus says you should expect the same thing. And the the message for us is very clear. If you decide to be faithful to Jesus Christ, you will endure conflict. You will find hardship and antagonism. So he's repeating the warning about family conflict and backs it up with Old Testament so that the disciples would know exactly what they were getting into and should not have been surprised when it happened. And church, we want to follow the same pattern and tell you, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised when you encounter conflict because of faithfulness to Christ. So the true believer then embraces the honesty and appreciates the honesty of the king concerning the reality of heartbreak and ministry. And by the way, when I say ministry, I'm not referring exclusively to elders and deacons. I am talking about every one of you who are a follower of Jesus Christ. You have a ministry, whether you know it or not, whether it's official or not. Why? Because you minister to people. So there is heartbreak that accompanies the faith. Conflict serves a divine purpose. We should thank God for conflict in our lives. Why? Because it makes us long for everlasting peace. It makes us long for heaven. It makes us long for the time where there will be no more curse. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow. And that's going to last forever. So we can endure a year or two of conflict, can't we? A few months of opposition. Here's what Paul elaborates on that. And he says this, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 10. By the way, he wrote that letter to a church that wanted his head. And this is what he says. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the extraordinary greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus Christ so that the life of Jesus may be also revealed in our body. And he concludes that in verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. These are people who betrayed him. These are people who are talking about him behind his back. This is how he deals with conflict. He says, we do not lose heart, but though the outer person is decaying. What is he talking about? I am battle scarred. He's saying, these circumstances here have caused me so much grief that my body is aching because of this. And he says, we do not lose heart for the outer person is decaying, but our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In church, that is the perspective that we need to embrace. That is the perspective that we need to embrace when it comes to enduring hardship and conflict and lost friendships. Because of the gospel, because our faithfulness to the word of God, our faithfulness to the gospel. Jesus does not want his disciples to be uninformed about the cost of faithfulness to him. Therefore, he clarifies that his first coming would trigger temporary affliction. But his word assures us that the incomparable eternal glory awaits the believer in Christ. So let's fix our eyes on that. Stay tuned for his promises here in a little bit. We're talking about the monarch. We talked about his honesty 
Let's see about his demands here in verses 37 through 39. And again, only a divine king can make the type of demands he's making. Only he can claim higher loyalty to family bonds. Let's talk about that. These are hard words. And that is another reason that many people reject the gospel. These are hard words for us to grasp. It first creates repulsion in our heart. Our flesh tends to reject that. What are you talking about? I'm supposed to love you more than my sons and daughters? That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. He clarifies his expectation from his followers. Now, he is not advocating for destruction of the family, church. That is very evident. Why do we say this? Because he just spoke against divorce in in the Sermon on the Mount. So he's not advocating for division in the family. But he elaborates on the principle of verse 28, which says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but are unable to to kill the soul. In other words, what he's saying is this. If you are ever in a position that you are forced to choose between family relationships and affiliation to Christ, your love for your Savior must trump love of family. Now, this does not mean that you need to love ministry more than you love your family. That is a poor understanding of this, and that is bad. I have met some pastors who misunderstood this, and whether they know it or not, they apply that principle, and as they were serving in the church, their families fell apart. That is not what this is talking about here. This doesn't say love the church more than you love your family. He's not talking about this. Your love for your Savior must trump love of family. If you are ever forced in a position to choose between the two, and I doubt that any of us here in our generation will ever come to the point where it's the sword or your affiliation to me. Look at verse 38. He further explains his demand of undivided loyalty by using the image of a cross. Now, None of the disciples at this point suspected that Jesus was going to end up on a cross at this point. This is the beginning of their ministry. This is their call. And a cross is a Roman torture device. We all know that. And he makes a clear point. He's not talking about inconveniences of life. In other words, your bad boss is not your cross. Your loud neighbor is not your cross to bear. He's talking about death here as an instrument of torture. And he makes this point clear. Rome crucified thousands upon thousands of people during this time. What they would do, they would force the victim or the accused to carry the cross to the crucifixion site and they would line them up on the Roman roads so that people going through would get the message very clearly. If you attempt an insurrection, you will end up like one of these. Do not mess with the state. That was the point. And Jesus is telling them, if you are not willing to endure that type of death for me, You are not worthy of me. It's a similar imagery here that is using with the sword. They are parallel illustrations with only one difference. The sword brings a swift, quick death. One blow, one chop of the head, and the person is gone. A cross, on the other hand, is a slow, painful, agonizing, humiliating demise. So Jesus is saying here, You must be willing to endure humiliation and agony for my name. Otherwise, you are not worthy of me. In other words, you do not identify with me if you're not willing to do that. That is the high cost of discipleship, the high cost of being in the faith. Many people walk away when they hear these words. Many people say, if that's the case, I'm done. Many people don't want to endure criticism for the cause of the gospel. So they they walk away. And Jesus says... (laughs) You must be willing to be crucified for my sake. So church, let me summarize all of this. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you signed your death certificate. Did you know that? When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you signed your death certificate to gain eternal life. 
In other words, you are declaring to the world, I am dead to sin. I am dead to myself because now Christ lives in me. And my desire is to honor him who lives in me. And not only that, church, God in you is the hope of glory, we are told in Scripture. So, yes, we must be able to endure insults for His glory, endure a beating, both physically and proverbially, if we have to, for His name's sake, but you die for your pride, and you, along with me, become fools for Christ. The world now hates you. The world hates me and us here. Why? Because we identify with Jesus Christ. We must be willing to even go to the gallows if needed, or to the guillotine. Take a bullet for Christ if you are called for martyrdom. But I guarantee you, in our day and age, it's very unlikely for us here in this part of the country that we will have to be called upon to do that. Now, in other parts of the world, that happens even today. Self-sacrifice is the essence of Christianity. We've been talking about death sacrifice and the cross and everything. Let's start with a more realistic approach in terms of application here. Is God calling you to humble yourself about anything? Are you in a situation where you're supposed to empty yourself of yourself and humble yourself so that you can imitate Christ and consider others more important than you and be obedient to God and out of obedience to God, die to self and give up your perceived needs or your perceived rights? so that you can honor the one who died on the cross for you? Now look at verse 39. Jesus presents a paradox of life and death, the context of which is the temptation to deny Christ under opposition. And he links again this paradox of verse 39 to verse 28 when he says, He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He's linking us. He'll draw a line between those two. They're connected because the fear of men tempts believers to prefer self-preservation over gospel proclamation. You see, the fear of what people can do to you will tempt you to deny affiliation with Christ. You will not be flogged, but you will be blogged. You heard me say this before. And the fear of being canceled in our generation here is so strong that people will give in to what people want them to do because they fear what they can do to the body. Now, Jesus says, no, 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 you must be able to lay down your life. And when you do this, you will find true life. Now, believers must be willing to forsake their lives for the blessing of identifying with Christ. And a true disciple will never hesitate. Although it is nerve-wracking, a true disciple will never hesitate to lay down his or her life for him. Again, church, this does not mean, now hear me carefully here, this does not mean that salvation comes through martyrdom. In a moment of weakness, doesn't forfeit your salvation, okay? Remember the life of Peter. He denied Christ, but he's a perfect example of redemption and the grace of God on display. Let me tell you the story about a man called Polycarp. Anybody heard that name before, the Bishop of Smyrna? The Roman emperor sentenced him to death because he wouldn't burn incense to the emperor, to the worship of the king. He said, I'm, I'm not doing that. So he was sentenced to death by fire. So they tied him to a pole, and he was given a chance to recant and to deny his affiliation with Christ. And he said this, quote, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Now, somebody recorded his last words, obviously, and they said, he said, quote, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. Close quote. 
and they burned him alive. Now, that is an extreme case. Again, I doubt that any of us here would ever have to experience that, but let's think about more of our reality. Can we not sacrifice comfort, status, popularity, and even dignity for the one who laid down his life for us and expects us to imitate him? Let me talk to you about the guarantees. We talked about his honesty and his demands, but not the guarantees from the monarch, from the king of kings. And uh, he, he concludes this paragraph here in a very positive note, in a very encouraging tone, by giving them comforting promises. And we can understand these promises, they are for us as well. Even though gospel proclamation may cause the death of the messenger of the kingdom, represented by the sword and the cross, and heartbreak by representing family losses, it brings life. And here's how. Some people will respond. Have you considered that? When you proclaim Jesus Christ, most people will reject if you're faithful to the message. But some will respond. Some people will respond in faith. And Christ assures that whoever embraces the message of the gospel receives the Father himself. See, that's what he says. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. In other words, people who respond to the gospel receive the indwelling presence of God himself. That's the result of receiving salvation. We should be willing to take a thousand insults for one new believer who will have the very presence of God in him. I'll take a thousand accusations, church, if that leads to one salvation, if that leads to one person coming to Christ. Well, let's go back to scripture. How about Paul in his house arrest when he writes to the Philippians in Philippians 1 verses 12 through 14? I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that in my imprisonment, the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the Praetorian Guard and everyone else. And most of the brothers and sisters trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word without fear. So that's the guarantee, church. When you, and I can't think of a clear example of that, when you preach the gospel, you may end up in jail, according to Paul here. But he says, I want you to know that these have turned for the greater progress of the gospel. Why? Because some people will believe. Some people will hear the message. So church, we should rejoice in our losses if they result in one soul being admitted to the kingdom of heaven. Some people will fully embrace the gospel and salvation will take place and there will be a party in heaven because of one sinner that repents what an honor what an honor to be the agent of new birth i can't think of a greater joy apart from my salvation to lead somebody to christ even though a thousand people here reject the message and another thousand is accusing us of wrong motives and and all for the joy of one soul being saved church that is far more encouraging than all of these other things And this is how Jesus described the reception of the Father when someone receives your message as a messenger of Jesus Christ. When they embrace the gospel that you preach to them, this is what happens. John 14, verse 23, If anyone loves me, Jesus says, he will follow my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. So when someone embraces the message of the gospel, they will receive the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Paul later says that we are all have been baptized into one body. We have all been made to drink of one spirit. Which means, my friend, if you are a believer in Christ, you have the Trinity indwelling you. Look at verse 41 when he says, He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And then he later on says, And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. He's talking about the same people here by mentioning a prophet and a righteous person. And we know that because in the immediate context, there was no one else around. 
than those people. And they were the prophets because they were functioning as representatives of God to people. They were about to be sent to talk to people about God. That's what a prophet does. And they were righteous because they were saved. They were talking about how to be righteous with God. So Jesus is most likely referring to the same people. And then he promises the reward for both the speaker and the listener. He's, he's talking about the difficulties and the opposition and the hardship. And now he says, there is a reward. And, and the people who listen and respond to the message will receive the same reward as the one preaching. Church, you have any idea what the reward is? Think about it. It's the same reward when you speak about Christ to someone, that person receives the same reward that you receive. What is the reward? Salvation. The presence of God himself in people. Obviously, there will be more rewards. The Bible speaks about the crowns that we will receive. But immediately here, the person who receives the message receives the greatest gift there is. Salvation by grace through faith. And that salvation package includes the very presence of God in people. It includes the admittance of people into the kingdom of heaven, freedom from condemnation, and more rewards later for faithfulness to service. Now, for that reason, I echo the words of Paul to the Galatians, chapter 6, verse 9, let us not become discouraged while doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. Let us not get discouraged in doing good. Let's continue to do good. Let's continue to bless people with the message of the gospel. Continue to go to your neighbors because we will reap a benefit. What is that benefit? Some people will receive the message. Most will not. Some will. And they will receive Jesus Christ and they will become a part of the family. And by the way, Jesus says this very clearly in verse 42. He is not a cheap rewarder. That's what he's saying in verse 42. He will reward a lot more than you're expecting. He announces a double reward in verse 42. And he, again, he's referring to the disciples again by calling them little ones. Why do we say that? Because there was no one else around. There were no children around when he's talking about this. When he says these little ones, probably referring to them as they are new in the faith, maturing in their faith, and perhaps a reference to their initial steps of spiritual growth. And according to that promise, he will reward every act of kindness done to messengers of the gospel. In other words, even something as insignificant as a cup of water, he's taking note of that. By divine design, he does not specify what that reward is. Why? So that we can anticipate and we'll be surprised. Now, the sentence here speaks volumes about the character of Christ, our monarch. Faithfulness in Christian service invites temporary conflict, but produces eternal rewards. And that's something we're going to carry for eternity. The conflict only lasts for a little bit, but rewards will be with us forever and ever. Jesus takes note, church, of every encouraging card that you sent me and my fellow elders. By the way, thank you for that. They keep coming every week. Thank you so much for doing that. They, they encourage us. But I want you to know, you can get a thank you from me, but you will get something much better from God just because you're being kind to a messenger of the gospel. And you are a messenger of the gospel as well. I'm not, I get to do it from the pulpit. You do it from personal relationships. He hears every prayer that you utter on our behalf, and he will reward you for it. But when you meet the need of another believer, and you need to know this, expressed by a cup of water, this is what the text says, whether emotional, physical, or spiritual, when you extend benevolence to a brother or sister in Christ, you are accumulating rewards from the monarch who announces, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to reward each one as it works deserves. Revelation 22 verse 10. So 
I promise you, you will not be shortchanged when you're looking forward to eternal rewards. Your cup will overflow. And that's what we learn from the monarch in this text. His honesty, his demands, and his guarantees. He is guaranteeing spiritual rewards and eternal rewards for members of the kingdom of God. And join me in prayer now. Father, thank you for your word and the promises that we have here. And just the joy of getting to know Christ. Just the joy of learning from his words, Lord. His words give a lot of insight into his personality and into his heart for people and his heart for ministry, his heart for what he desires from us for us to do, Lord. And we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for our church and what you're doing this year. Nothing that we're going through this year now is within our control. This was all you, Lord. And we take great encouragement that you are giving us the opportunity to trust you and you are communicating very clearly to us that this is your church. We love you for that, Lord, and we pray that you will continue to bless us and continue to give us a a renewed sense of passion for you and passion for people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. You'll also find information on the two books we've released, each based on one of Pastor's sermon series. The book of Revelation is always fascinating as we consider the end times. But the book of Ruth is also a timeless example of God's kindness in times of trouble and trial. All proceeds go directly to supporting this ministry, so it's a double investment in the kingdom. And we thank you in advance for your faithful support. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.